0: You are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to the Joseph Campbell Foundation Podcast, Pathways with Joseph Campbell. I'm your host, Bradley Olson. On this podcast, we share archived audio lectures given by Joseph Campbell over the course of his teaching and lecturing career. This episode of Pathways is a little different than the other episodes we've offered to date. The lecture we're listening to today is called The Universal Citizen, and at just under 32 minutes, it's a bit shorter than usual, and it has a few minutes of Q&A at the end of the lecture. We've often used the question and answer sessions of Campbell's lectures as bonus material released later in the month, but I find that listening to this lecture was surprisingly poignant. And that's the main reason I wanted to feature it on the Pathways podcast. This lecture was recorded in May of 1987 at the University of Hawaii. And as many of you know, Joseph Campbell died a mere five months later, in October of that same year, of esophageal cancer. One symptom of this type of cancer is a hoarse voice, And while Professor Campbell's voice isn't necessarily hoarse, its timbre is more subdued, softer than it has been in the other lectures we've listened to on this podcast, in which his voice is characteristically strong, rich, and resonant. And yet, one finds in this talk no indications whatsoever that Professor Campbell is withdrawing from life, no signs of discomfort, and no hints of anxiety. In fact, it seems that just the opposite is the case, as he speaks with characteristic humor and passion for the future, for human achievement and development, and to the enduring power of myth to speak to the past, the present, and, most pointedly, to the future. Even though he was drawing closer to the end of his life, he was not diminished at all, He still delighted in the dynamism of being and exploring the wonders of life through myth. The subject of this lecture, the idea of the universal or global citizen, is not a new one. In fact, when Diogenes, the ascetic, antisocial Greek philosopher, was asked where he was from, he replied, I am a citizen of the world. And I think it may be useful to understand what exactly it may mean to be a citizen of the world. In order to be a universal citizen, one's concerns transcend one's city, state, and nation. One relinquishes egoic and parochial personal interests, one's competitive instincts, one's notions of heroism being rooted in a singular, rugged individual, and forgoes an impulse, As Campbell writes in The Inner Reaches of Outer Space, launched from the eyes not to consume, but to possess. Our own origins, as Diogenes points out, arise not from merely human biology alone, but, and I quote again from Inner Reaches, we are in fact productions of this earth. We are, as it were, its organs. Our eyes are the eyes of this earth. Our knowledge is the earth's. Each human being is not disconnected, isolated, nor detached from all other human beings. Each of us belongs not exclusively to ourselves. We are all organs of the same body. We are in some fundamental way inseparable from one another, and our suffering. Our maltreatment of each other, as well as the planet, stems from failing to see through the illusion of individuality and the fallacy of limited resources. Universal citizens are politically critical. At around 14 and a half minutes into this lecture, you'll hear Professor Campbell refer to politicians who promote political divisiveness and competition for resources as, quote, stupid blockheads, unquote. Universal citizens are personally transformative, not simply working for a better world, but for a better self. Universal citizens understand the world as a unified whole, an inseparable amalgam of life, and consider the interests of various nations and peoples in relationship to each other, as well as to the needs of the planet. Finally, since as Spinoza noted, Citizens are not born but made. The universal citizen values a pedagogy that focuses on understanding the individual self in relationship to a global community and endorses lifelong learning educational programs that consider human values and beliefs, history, cross-cultural studies, and the development of critical thinking and analytical skills oriented to all levels. Social, political, economic, and environmental essential to the discovery of meaning and satisfaction in the living of life. So, with the idea of universal citizenship in mind, please enjoy Joseph Campbell's 1987 University of Hawaii lecture on the universal citizen. And immediately following his talk, I'll be back with some final remarks. And talk about some of the important and interesting ideas from the lecture. And now, Joseph Campbell.
2: Now, all the wisdom of the world is already present in the Hindu Upanishads. And in the Brihadaranyaka, which is the earliest Upanishad, goes back to around the ninth century BC, uh, there's a, a very interesting passage. The, the self, the Atman, that which is no thing but is the dynamism of being, said I. Suddenly uh, the image comes into its being, of itself as a being, and no sooner did it say I, than it felt fear. And that here you have the first voice then the I, I mean it's a simultaneous experience. And, of course, that was the first thought in the world, and so the reasoning wasn't very complicated. It it said, what should I be afraid of, since I'm the only thing that's around? (laughs) And um, no sooner did it have that sense of loneliness, then its next experience was desire. Gee, I wish there was someone else around. And then it uh, swelled up and split into two, and was male and female. And uh, generated the world. It's a funny sort of sequence there. First, he moves to the uh, Shakti, the female form, and uh, she says, How can he have union with me who am of his same substance? So she turns herself into a mare, he turns himself into a stallion. That's that one. She turned into a cow. She into a bull. And so they generated all creatures down to the ants. And uh, <coughs> that's how the world got started. And then, uh,
0: <laughs>
2: well, the very interesting thing, he looks around and he says, I have sent forth all this. I am that. I am the universe. Now, the interesting thing is in this story the god himself splits it's not himself it's an itself before it splits and in splitting it becomes male-female now in the second chapter of the old testament there's adam and god comes along and splits him he pulls eve out what james joyce calls the cutlet-sized And uh, you have, again, the original being who was male and female, who then split itself in half. And the dates are about the same, I think, that the uh, second chapter is the older chapter of the Old Testament, it belongs to the Yavis text, it goes back to about the same date as the Brihadonia. Then the next representation of this splitting comes in Plato's Symposium. The original beings were made of Two beings together, they had four arms and four legs, and they rolled around like great griots um, uh, when they moved around, and there were three kinds, remember we're in 4th century, century Greece, 5th century Greece now, uh, which is a sort of sophisticated time, um, there were three kinds, male, female, and they were associated with the moon, female, female, they were associated with the earth, and male, male. They were associated with the sun. And uh, the gods were afraid of them because they were so potent. Then Zeus and uh, Apollo decided to cut them in half. They cut them in half, turned their heads around. and The navel is where they sewed them all up again. And then the first thing these cut-in-half people did was embrace each other. And then they all sat like that. And the god said, well, we won't get any work done this way. <laughs> so <laughs> they separate them, so nobody knows where anyone else is. And then trying to find each other, they bring forth civilization. That's, uh, I, I think, the most complicated representation of this problem. But you notice that in both of what I call the Western uh, ones, that's say, the biblical and the Greek, it is the gods who separate the people. But in the Eastern one, the deity himself separates. Now, this is, is a basic principle between Oriental and Occidental thinking about God. God is out there here in most of our traditions. And, and whenever you come across the realization of Tantravamasi, thou art that, Shiva hung, I am Shiva. Uh, or it comes as a revelation. Take it for granted, that's the whole point of the religious life, to realize that you are one with that, that, that being. I remember the first lecture I ever heard Dyset de Sufuki give, it was at Ascona in Switzerland. He was a dolly little man, he, he was about so big, and his, uh, his eyebrows came out like that. And uh, he was about 92 or 3 years old at that time. And uh, he stood up before this uh, European audience there in that beautiful lecture hall that's gone. He put his hands on his side, and here's the way he began his lecture. Man against God. God against man. Nature against God. God against nature. Nature against man. Man against nature. Very funny religion. (laughs) <laughs> that's the way we look from the other side of the ocean. <laughs> well, what the, what the shaman does, or what the um, priest does, is show the relevance of the contemporary experience to those mythological forms. And then you have a local mythology. You see what I mean? The imagery of the world in which you live becomes interpreted in terms of its archetypal context. And unless there's someone around to give you interpretations of your world in which you're living, uh, you are without a religion, really. You've got someone else's religion that was brought over, let's say, from somewhere else and has no relevance. And this is a, a break-off. But the inability of so many of the anthropologists of of an earlier generation, I think they've all sort of learned their lesson now, um, was conspicuous to the people whom they were talking to and trying to interpret I had a very important friend in my life, uh, Maya Deren, who was a student, really, of um, the Haitian Voodoo and participated in the voodoos and had a possession herself and so forth. And I helped to write her book on the... uh, the, uh, What's she called them? Uh, divine horsemen, yes. The, the, they would say that the uh, person became mounted by a god. And, uh, but this one, they say that when the anthropologist arrives, the gods disappear. He asked the wrong questions, you know, and. Uh,
0: <clears throat>
2: but the accent in the Old Testament on history is so strong that it's very difficult to pull anything else out of it. I had a Hindu friend, a young man who was at, when I was in New York, he was at the um, United Nations. He was the secretary of the Hindu delegation there, and uh, he was a very religious young man. I mean, he wore the Vishnu sign on his forehead and wearing uh, western clothes, and he came to see me one day uh, because he had read some of the books that I had edited from Heinrich Zimmer about Hinduism and so forth and uh, <clears throat> we can be very good friends, and when he felt he could talk to me as friend to friend he said, you know, when I go to different countries and be being in with the um, consulates and so forth he said, I'd like to study their religion, <laughs> he said, I bought myself a Bible, I can't find any religion in it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I said, if you don't understand that there was a fall in the Garden of Eden and that God had to rescue civilization and uh, train up a special priestly race to carry his, uh, his uh, intentions, if you don't understand that the history of the Jews is the history of religion, then of course you don't find any religion with the Bible. Well, friends told me I should have told them to read the Psalms. So I went to work and started reading the Psalms. And uh, after you get past the first verse or two, the second, third, and fourth say, God, you are on my side, and you'll break my enemy's teeth. Or God, help me out of this ditch. Or, I mean, you're always asking for help from God. It's always ego. There. So I'm just glad I didn't recommend it to him or I'd have lost my reputation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's a very
2: important thing in our traditions. This, This culture commitment. And uh, the Christians took it over. And uh, you cannot really be in touch with God except by being a member of the Roman Catholic Church. I was brought up that way, and I know that that's what they tell you. I couldn't even go into a Protestant church because they'd lost the whole message. They didn't have God there. We had God in the tabernacle. <laughs> and uh, this, uh, this uh, isolationism that's, that's characteristic now when you turn to the study of Buddhism, all the different sects, they are different ways of looking at the same mystery, and they are all recognizing each other as valid. The Christians cut off the others. Why do we have so many small states in the northeastern part of the United States? Because of that bunch of Puritans that came over, each one wouldn't allow anybody to think about God except the way he did, so they had to move and start another state. <laughs> I think if you're stuck with a religion, the thing to do is reread it in terms of its uh, transcendent uh, uh, connotations, and uh, your life will open. uh, I taught comparative mythology for many years to students in a college. And uh, whereas when I started I thought what I'm doing by this comparative method is destroying their religions, what I found was that it uh, reanimated their religions. They saw new depths, new meanings, and they saw also the personal references. The references of all mythological symbols are to you, to spiritual potentialities within yourself. And the fact that you then uh, give yourself up to worship of an outside messenger, you're mistaking the messenger for the message. It's as though you were to go into a restaurant and eat the menu. (laughs) The the reference is not where you're to get stuck. So, um, any any religion that you feel stuck with uh, can open up immediately. And a very good technique is simply to find the uh, the counterpart in another religion and and see the opening of the of the meaning of this thing. So that would be my my word of suggestion. And there's another aspect to getting born, though, that uh, Otto Rahn speaks about in his nice little book, the myth of the birth of the hero. He says the average person, the average person feels that having gotten born was his hero's act, and that's all he has to do. And uh, the rest of the world has to take care of him now, because he's done his big job. <laughs> Every mythology has grown up in a given environment, and is the mythology of a given group. And it's an in-group world. Uh, As the uh, magnitude of the group enlarges, the mythology has to enlarge also. All mythologies reserve love for the in-group, and they have a different attitude toward the out-group from that toward people in the in-group. The contemporary situation is the one of the disintegration of these circles. One reason I think that word that Black Elk spoke, which I quoted, I was seeing in a sacred manner and I saw that the hoop of my nation was one hoop among many hoops, all of one father and mother and served by the one tree. That's the new mythology. It's right there. The motifs are going to be the same that have been in myths all over the world. The elementary ideas are still there. These ones that are not historically conditioned at all, but are essential to the psyche and body of the human being. So those are the grounds. But the point is, where is the field to which the myth applies? And the field is the world. And unless you're a citizen of the world, as well as a citizen. Now, here we are citizens of Hawaii, but also of the United States. Well, we could be citizens of the United States and also of the world, and that's the way people have to think. Now, what's going on in these absurd um, meetings that everybody gets news of in the newspaper, summits, 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 they do not go to those meetings with the feeling that uh, we are two states in one nation, you know? They're fighting each other all the time. All that has to happen is that those stupid blockheads will (laughs) open up and know where we are today. uh, That's all there is. You will have the same mythology. Now, it's possible, you see, to screen out the knowledge that your mythology is the same as other people's mythology, just by, I had a very amusing conversation with a Jewish couple uh, we've often known sometime in New York, uh, on Christmas, and the wife, we were having dinner again. and the wife said, uh, you know, Rachel, the little girl, she's very unhappy because she can't have a Christmas tree. Well, I said, why can't she have a Christmas tree? Uh, she said, because it's Christian. I said, Christian? It's about as Christian as Yggdrasa. It's uh, no tree in the Christian myth. Uh, this is a, a, a mythology. And I said, no, the menorah, the 7 branch candlestick, has been interpreted by uh, philo eudaius uh, as the central one is the sun and the three on this side are the shadow spheres the moon mercury and venus the three on this are the unshadowed spheres mars jupiter and saturn and that's all the christmas tree is i mean you've got the star on the top and the lights all around it's the world tree so i said why don't you tell rachel she's got a fancy menorah and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> It's already here, Jesus you just said, it. it's all here. The clergy haven't recognized it. So they're talking in archaic terms. It's right here. People are experiencing things that way. That's why I said the great dead to go on playing, boys, and uh, give people a sense of the common humanity responding in rapture to the awakening of their nature and their compassion and and rift living with other people. That's, that's all, it's here. But can't get it into the newspapers. <laughs> now what are you going to do with the, the new universe that we've got? Uh, the universe in the Bible is 2000 BC, three-level universe. God up there, the abyss down here, and here we are in between. And uh, then we had the uh, geocentric universe, and that became religiously interpreted. And uh, in the Middle Ages, <clears throat> that was it. Uh, you had uh, the, the spheres, these uh, crystalline spheres, and on each sphere was an angel, and uh, God is out there, and he's interested in this uh, community down here, particularly one little group there. And uh, <laughs> then uh, <laughs> we have um, uh, what is it, 1540? three uh, Copernicus with the heliocentric universe. And that then was regarded as heretical and untrue because contrary to scripture, and it is contrary to scripture. So scripture's finished by that time, except people continued a whole lot of them. And uh, <coughs> Galileo was tried 1616 or something like that on this point that he was preaching or teaching uh, the heliocentric universe. Well, even that's now out of date. Our sun is one little bit of a monster that's nuclear explosion going on in a galaxy of these, the the Milky Way, uh, a galaxy of these. And in the Milky Way and in this heavens above are little dots that are other galaxies and they've located about I don't know how many hundreds of these galaxies now. So we've got Good, Josh. What are you going to do with this god up there looking down at a bunch of people down here who say their prayers the right way? This is uh, it's, it's absurd and uh, it's it, it totally finished. And uh, who brings forth the mythology? Mythology is heard. Mythology is discovered by whom? By artists, by poets. They're the ones who bring it. They're called sages when they're older than we are. They they are the ones. They have to bring it forth. They constitute the rituals. A ritual is a rendition of the realization, of the relationship, of the context of the world that you're living in, to the great archetypes. That's what art's all about. It's the revelation of the divine radiance in all the life that you're living. And uh, our poets are working hard, but they've been badly trained. They've been trained in Christianity and sociology. And they think they've always got to be talking about what's good and what's bad and all that kind of thing. And uh, it's really pitiful. Um, I've been living with artists all my life and I see them starting to work, young people, and they're all caught in this trap of giving a good ethical statement. They're all on picket lines about atom bombs and all that kind of thing. That has nothing to do with it. The metaphysical dimension is not the same as the ethical. We belong to a religious tradition that distinguishes between good and evil. There's no other religious tradition that does that. That's the Zoroastrian, Judeo-Christian, Muslim line. That there is an absolute good and God's good. And there's a devil down there. And the two of them are there. And you've got a dualism there. Uh, All that's got to blow. And you've got to open these things to the mystical dimension and realize your own life within. Now, the early mythologies, all the civilizations of the world were grounded in mythologies. The early myths were the creative powers that created the structure of society, and they were structured so that they corresponded to the nature of the human being, but as the societies get older and older, more and more practical, and interested in economically (laughs) effective results, they lose the link with nature, and consequently, the religions lose the link with nature. And then you have a turning of man inward, what Spengler called the second religiousness. We're right in that period now. The early religion shapes the civilization. The civilization becomes economically, politically interested in things that have nothing to do with nature and the being of man, and then men turn in with searching. So we're in that in-between period now, between the culture that uh, had a religion and the culture that's going to have it. And the ones that had it were limited, the one that's coming is going to be planetary, that's always to it. And meanwhile, the only rescue for the world is individuals, you and you and you, finding it within yourself and living in terms of that. That's what I see for the interim period that we're in now. <laughs> what is dreaming? <laughs> There's a food dream. well, I can't remember.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: but, uh... To dream, there must be images, and the fetus has had no experience of any image yet. So how can it dream? What would the material of the dream be? Well, to get in the bardo, the idea of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, that between death and reconception, there is a period of uh, 49 days, seven sevens. And uh, at the moment of uh, of birth, of, of death, one experiences the transcendent light. let say you're starting up here and you're going to come down the Kundalini and the, the stages in the, the Kundalini of the um, Tibetan Book of the Dead are the stages coming down and there's the Lama at your bedside who, who knows uh, you, he's been your chaplain or whatnot, uh, confessor and so forth, and uh, he can somehow estimate whereabouts you'd get located on the way down. Um, you have this moment, but if there is a connection still buzzing in you with some images in the world, you can't stay there and you're terrified because you're going to lose your ego. So, hanging on to your ego, you're brought down here, and there you see the deity of your worship. Here it's Varachana Buddha who appears. Uh, well, that's too bright for you. You can't take that. That blasts your ego also. So then you come down to here, and here is a long ordeal of the five Buddhas of the center and the four points of the compass appear first in the, what's called the bliss-giving mood, but this is more than you can take. So then you're stuck with your ego, and they come in, and they're voracious and in the, uh, furious, the uh, furious aspects of the same Buddhas. And you, you can't take that. They can't bust your ego. So you come down to the heart chakra where the Lord of Decisions stands, the judge of the dead, and here is the moment of crisis. Are you going to lose touch with the upper world, or are you going to move down? Now all of this is being experienced, you know, by the fetus, see? Um, it's a wonderful thing. Um, you You hear the God so the Nama saying, there's nothing to hold to, there's nothing to do, nothing to hold to, nothing to do, don't get excited. The karmic winds begin to blow. (laughs) And you begin to get into the field of action and reaction and so forth. And then the great wall closes behind you. And all you're hearing now are the Sounds of the world. And when you hear the sounds of the world, there are only three sounds. They all sound differently, a lot of verbiage. But there are just three sounds being made. Ignorance, desire, and malice. <laughs> that, that's all there is, kid. So uh, don't get excited. Nothing to hold to, nothing to do. But you're going to get excited. And then the Lama has the problem. You begin when you get here to see images of men, male and female, uniting sexually. And the Lama is saying to you, try not to get between them. <laughs> well, look, now you get between all right. And um, then if you find that you're feeling Feelings of hatred for your father, you're going to be born a boy. If hatred for your mother, you're going to be born a girl. Where does Freud come in? You know, Chopra too. <laughs> then this problem is to get you born on the right side of the tracks, so that you'll have good Buddhist education and perhaps make it next time. You know, um, and not get born in the womb of some mouse or the egg of some flea. I mean, we would get down that far, my friends, and, uh, so it's worth, uh, it worth uh, hanging on to, nothing to hold to, nothing to do. That's a little personal advice.
0: <laughs>
2: Given the sound stream of consciousness, i.e. Aum, and the power of silent reflection upon stimuli, like sound, what are both your thoughts regarding the role of the creative arts, music, dance, poetry, and so forth, and the balancing of the element? Well, let me get on the arts for a while. Let's see what this is. When I spoke of Maya, there are three powers of Maya. One is the occluding power, shutting out the knowledge of eternity and the transcendent, shutting out the experience of it, closing you in. And then we come to the next power, which is the projecting power. This is like the power of a prism. White sunlight is turned into the colors of the rainbow. Uh, This is the projection of all the forms of the world, which are all reflections of that one transcendent energy. The occluding power, or obscuring power, the projecting power. And then, the revealing power to reveal through the forms of the world, the radiance of the eternal. That is the function of art. And that's all it's really for. And the forms that come from the artist's, uh, we say, achievement of this revelation are the forms that structure life and society. Rituals are art forms shaping life to become visibly metaphorical of the Transcendent. Now in the Thomas Gospel, which is a Gnostic Gospel that was discovered in 1945 or something like that, um, the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus says uh, the Kingdom of the Father is within and without, it's all around you but men do not see it. The kingdom of the Father is spread upon the earth, and men do not see it. The artist sees it. He sees it through the forms, and that's the radiance. Joyce speaks of this in his wonderful discussion of uh, Ark in the last chapters of the early book, The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. The artist gets beyond desire and fear for the object. You look at an object and render it as desirable and cause this pornographic art. Rendering the object as reprehensible and to be avoided and uh, crushed or rejected, that's didactic art. But beyond the pairs of opposites of desire and loathing or fear, there is just looking at the object and seeing it as the radiance. And you are not truly an artist unless you can see that radiance in the most reprehensible human being that you can think of there is god still radiant you're judging ethically in terms of sociology and economic values or whatnot and that's what's happened to our art now and that's what I was complaining about just a minute ago when I saw the problem with the young artist. They're, they're told, you know, let's say Hitler is bad. Hitler is an image of God. And you've got to see him that way. And God's own grace is available even to the deepest sinner. And if the artist does not see the sinner. The artist sees the manifestation of the divine mystery in that aspect. That's what I'm talking about. And uh, uh, we, we've been reading the newspapers too much. Uh, judging things, whom are we gonna vote for, and all that. And uh, the artist then becomes, what like, you saved yourself from being a cartoonist, Nathaniel. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I think this is terribly important. to Open the eyes and see with two eyes. And the, the artist does not too dim. That's the job of the clergyman, a preacher, or somebody like that. But the, the artist goes beyond that. So that's what I'm to say about the artist.
1: It is something of a truism to say that we can't know where we're going if we don't understand where we've been. And as if to illustrate that point, Professor Campbell began this lecture by telling us that, quote, All the religions of the world are already present in the Hindu Upanishads. The Upanishads are Sanskrit texts that form the basis of Hinduism and deal primarily with philosophy, ontology, and metaphysical speculations on the nature of being. Upanishad literally means sitting near, in other words, sitting near to or at the feet of a master. Professor Campbell refers specifically to the Brihadaranyaka, Upanishad. Brihadaranyaka means great forest or wilderness. And these Upanishads delineate the nature of the Atman, or soul. It is in this text that we first learn of concepts such as non-duality and karma. Campbell tells the story of the soul, or the Atman, the dynamism of being, as he calls it first becoming conscious of itself and simultaneously co-arising with this self-awareness was the feeling of fear. After realizing that it was itself all that is, it felt a desire born out of loneliness to assuage the loneliness the dynamism of being brings forth from itself all that is. And perhaps not least significantly, that includes us as well. From the perspective of psychotherapy, we have the opportunity to experience that same primordial fear each time we realize a new layer or aspect of the self resulting from the inner work of therapy. I think we harbor a deeply unconscious awareness that we are so much more, so much larger than we consciously believe we are or could be. And when we sense a call to inhabit more of that bigness, to live more fully, more expansively, it's frightening. How will our lives have to change to accommodate it? What will it ask of us? Where will it demand we go? What sacrifice will it require? But if we're able to understand the fear as the usual reaction to the archetypal demands of human existence we manage to be more at peace with the challenges and risks of living more fully, with greater awareness of who we are and the passions that inspire and drive us. Additionally, understanding the desire evoked by loneliness, the sense that we are somehow singularly unique and separate from others, the sense that the loneliness of desire creates a sense of being or feeling incomplete, of lacking something fundamentally necessary to be ourselves. This may lead us to a greater compassion for others who suffer, and compassion for ourselves as well. At around 5 minutes and 40 seconds into this lecture, Professor Campbell refers to D.T. Suzuki, a Japanese scholar, professor of Buddhist philosophy, and author who was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize in 1963. Campbell humorously recalls Suzuki opening a lecture with the words, Man against God, God against man, Nature against God, God against nature, Nature against man, man against nature. Very funny religion. Campbell then remarks that this is how we appear to the other side of the world. What? Professor Campbell is emphasizing is, I believe, that from the point of view of the universal citizen, some cultural or societal self-awareness regarding how the rest of the world sees us is necessary, not to merely facilitate foreign policy and more slickly advance an American agenda around the world, but an awareness of the way we're perceived by the world beyond our own borders is crucial to developing an antidote to our own ethnocentrism, making us more civilized and more engaged with the world beyond our narrow, nationalistic, sectarian, and personal concerns. Professor Campbell rather casually and briefly also mentions his friend Maya Darren, a remarkable woman who really was ahead of her time. She was stunningly beautiful and one of those brilliant multi-hyphenates, She was born in the Ukraine in 1917 and fled Soviet Russia with her family when she was four or five years old, eventually becoming the prototypical American avant-garde filmmaker. She was also an accomplished dancer, choreographer, poet, writer, and photographer who died prematurely in 1961 at the age of 44. Her films don't so much provide resolutions as they evoke resonances and build toward what Darren herself called a tension plateau. The form of her films asks a lot of viewers in terms of making connections and embracing indeterminateness, and they were in service to Darren's goal of, as one scholar of film put it, to generate better spectators and therefore better people. Campbell edited her 1953 book Divine Horsemen, The Living Gods of Haiti, I elaborate a little on Darren because she is but one example of the remarkable people with whom Campbell was able to develop friendships. John Steinbeck, Jiddu Krishnamurti, John Cage, Bob Weir, among a host of others. These relationships suggest to me that Campbell was not only a wise, knowledgeable scholar, but a boon companion, a kind of bon vivant who lived his life with an enthusiasm that was highly contagious. Around 9 minutes and 40 seconds in, Professor Campbell speaks to what he calls the culture commitment religions establish. It's a kind of anti-establishment clause in that rather than forbidding the establishment of a national religion, the culture commitment is founded on the notion that individuals, or nations for that matter, can't be in touch with or benefit from God's protection without belonging to that God's particular religion. Here in the U.S., it's a particularly fractious business. Take Baptists, for instance. There are at least 62 identifiable denominations of Baptist churches, some with as few as 25 members, others with as many as 16 million, and each sect seems to think that it is more theologically correct than all the others. Even the Catholic Church consists of 24 churches the most familiar of which, at least for Americans, is the Latin rite, or the Roman Catholic Church. But there's also the Alexandrian rite, which contains the Coptic Catholic Church, the Eritrean Catholic Church, and the Ethiopian Catholic Church. Something similar with other rites of other Catholic churches is repeated variously around the world 20 more times, and I suspect that the Roman Catholic Church would not concede that it is equivalent to the Ruthenian Catholic Church. The main reference in each case is the particular theological rendering of God and or Jesus unique to that particular denomination. It's an in-group world, Campbell reminds us, and all myths are for the in-group and have a different attitude and consequence for the out-group. There are also several different sects in Buddhism, but they all seem to recognize each other as equally valid. And in these instances, the central referent is not a god, not even the Buddha, but oneself. Unlike Christianity or other monotheisms, there is no central organizing deity with whom to cultivate a relationship. Your only task is to discover that you are what you seek, and as Campbell was fond of saying, to become transparent to the transcendent. One may, from within any religious tradition, open to its transcendent implications, and then, rather than destroying or abandoning the religion, one finds it re enchanted, reanimated, and reclaimed for one's personal deepening spiritual search. Professor Campbell reminds his audience that the reference for all mythological symbols is oneself, and all mythological symbols point to the spiritual potentialities within the individual. Near to the end of the lecture, Professor Campbell gives a marvelous definition of ritual. He says that ritual is a rendition of the realization of of the relationship, of the context of the world you're living in, to the great archetypes. And he goes on to say that it's the revelation of the divine radiance in the life you're living. Well now, that's really something. To get to the revelation of divine radiance in one's life requires us to transcend religions. It even requires us to transcend social sciences. And ultimately, even ethics. The standards of right and wrong, good and bad, with which we try to determine the value of our lives, not just for ourselves, but for others too, and societies as well. Ethics should not be confused or conflated with metaphysics. Metaphysics is, quite simply, only concerned with the nature of and the relations among things that exist. And this is a crucial concept to remember if one wishes to truly understand Joseph Campbell. The world, and life in the world, cannot ultimately be separated into good or bad. In fact, everything in this world is enchantingly holistic. The world, the universe, and everything it produces or creates is a manifestation of the dynamism of being. Everything that exists and every experience of it is intimately interconnected. And this holism is what makes it possible for Campbell to say that we can participate joyfully in the sorrows of this world. Campbell remarked to Bill Moyers in a 1981 interview that there's this transcendent energy source. Things come and go, come and go, and we come and go, and all of life comes and goes, And that energy, that energy is the informing energy of all things. That's what we recognize in the animals, in the trees, in the world of nature. And it's to that that the mythic worship is addressed. And it's out of that that the impulse comes for that kind of realization, For Joseph Campbell, everything is the manifestation of the one. And yet this is no mere relativism or nihilism, for the world remains, as he writes in The Masks of God, Occidental mythology, submissive to examination in its various aspects. The idea that the world remains submissive to examination is another way of defining experience, its empiricism, and it's another way to understand Campbell's notion that we are not looking for meaning in our lives, but rather the experience of being alive. Submitting the world and ourselves to examination is the embodied experience, the praxis of being alive. Professor Campbell asks his audience, where is the field to which the myth applies? He begins to answer, the field is in the world, and unless you're a citizen of the world, But at that point, he's apparently seized by another related idea, and he pivots to a discussion of political divisions and narrow-minded politicians, this is where he calls them stupid blockheads, that feed constant competition between opposing ideas and ideals and thwart any kind of unifying cooperation. We can, however, speculate about how he might have finished that thought. If the field to which myth applies is the world, one must be a citizen of the world in order for the myth to support living in it. If one separates oneself from others, separates one race or nation from another, or continues to see the world in terms of its divisions rather than its collective unity, one separates oneself from the transformative, supportive power of myth as well. He concludes this thought by saying, if we saw ourselves as one, we'd all have the same mythology. In the Power of Myth interviews, Joseph Campbell remarked, when you see the earth from the moon, you don't see any divisions of nations or states. And referring to this image of an undivided world, a world without national borders, he concludes by saying, this might be the symbol for the new mythology to come. This is the country that we're going to be celebrating, and those are the people that we are one with. The old mythologies and the post-mythic structures we presently entertain tend to emphasize and maintain the distance, the separation, and the opposition between each other, as well as nature itself. The mythologies of the future will be planetary in scope and relevance perhaps even universal, and will move beyond ethics, economics, and political tactics. The old mythic narratives and symbols that still attract us were once mythologies of some future age to come, and there must have been, in that dark abysm of history, individuals who may have seemed crazy, or perhaps geniuses, or maybe both to their contemporaries, These were the people who sensed the resonant power of new stories and symbols to make sense of a world that was confusing, illogical, and hostile to human life. These individuals, and perhaps they were artists or poets of some sort, refused to be disabused of the explanatory power, verisimilitude, and beauty of these symbols, and they continued to work to refine and transmit them to societies that, over long periods of time, unconsciously grew more receptive and began to see these symbols as more reliable technology, more satisfying ways of relating to and living in the world until eventually a sort of critical mass was achieved and these images incorporated a concept of a divinely animated universe, a universe which was, for them, more understandable in terms of cause and effect, more logical and more favorably disposed to human beings, even if the cause and logic seem ridiculous to modern people. I suspect there are people out there now working with archetypal images in ways suited to some future age, and I hope they are as successful as their archaic counterparts were in developing mythic symbols with which to face an often mystifying and incessantly unfolding cosmos. A mythology not tied to the success or failure of nation states, not tied to in groups or out groups, but tied instead to the discovery of, and the living in, the radiance of life. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back next month with a new Joseph Campbell lecture on the Joseph Campbell Foundation's flagship podcast, Pathways with Joseph Campbell.
0: Pathways with Joseph Campbell is a production of the Joseph Campbell Foundation and the MythMaker Podcast Network and is produced by John Booker and Elias Mirnoff Executive Producer Robert Walter Your host has been Bradley Olson Editing and audio services
1: provided by Seth Balin Music exclusively provided by APM Music For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell please
0: visit jcf.org